The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. Hello, I'm Susan Cooper, and you're listening to the Guardian Children's Books podcast. I'm going to read you the very beginning of my new book, Ghost Talk. And the narrator who's telling you the story is an 11-year-old Poconokit Indian boy. He had left his canoe in the river, tied to a branch of a low-growing cherry tree. Now there was green marshland ahead of him, all round the river's last slow curve. He pushed his way through waist-high grass towards one of the three high places in the marshland where trees grew. They were islands of trees, never visited. The duck hunters went only to the marsh. He'd chosen this place months ago, and now was the day to come back. In a squawking flurry, two ducks erupted ahead of him, flying low. But his bow stayed on his back. He wouldn't hunt till later, on the way home. He reached the trees. A tangle of pin oak and cherry, sumac and hickory, juniper and birch and he threaded his way through the grabbing branches to the two rocks that marked the tree he had chosen. There it still was beside the rocks, still the proper shape, the small bitternut hickory tree with its twin leading stems growing in a slender V. He gave the tree a respectful greeting and explained what he was about to do. The woven birchbark pouch was heavy round his neck. He took out the stone blade, a long notched rectangle of flint, with one edge chipped to a fine sharpness. This blade had belonged to the tomahawk used by his father and his grandfather until its handle broke. Nobody knew where it had come from or when it was made. It was very precious to him. Carefully he fitted the blade into the cleft between the tree's two slim branches, twisting them together above it. Then with tough strands of deer sinew from his pouch, he bound the joined branches tightly above the stone, so tightly that they would grow together as the years went by, enclosing the blade. To make a tomahawk for your son, you needed the stone blade and the wooden shaft and time. In my father's day, there was still time. When he'd finished his binding, he thanked the small tree and gave it good wishes to grow straight and strong. Then he went back across the marshland to his canoe. On the way, he shot three ducks, for the feast celebrating the arrival of the baby son who had been born early that day. I was that son, because Flying Hawk was my father. The name they were giving me was Little Hawk. Eleven winters later, my father Flying Hawk took me to the bitternut hickory tree on the marshland. It was a longer journey than it had been for him before, because a year later our village had moved on. All the goodness of the land where it stood had been used up by our years of growing crops on the fields and the time had come to give the land back to the trees who would replenish it. This is the way of things. So the crops had been harvested and packed into baskets, corn and squash and beans, and one by one the houses of elm bark shingles and woven birch bark matting had been taken apart 
Everyone had carried the shingles and mats a long way through the forest, to the new land that the men had been burning and clearing since spring, and poles had been set in the ground to make new frames for the houses. This was home, the only one I could remember. Though hunting or fishing would take us away in their seasons, this was now the place to which we always returned, until once more the time would come for us all to move on. From here the marsh had to be reached on foot, and that took my father and me three days. But when after all our walking we came out of the woods to the open marshland, I could hear the distant breathing of the sea, and across the waving grass, fading now from green to gold, I could see the three islands my father had described to me. They were three dark hummocks of woodland, in this flat bird-haunted elbow of almost land that the river made on its winding way to the sea. My father headed for the smallest island, zigzagging on clumps of grass so that our moccasins would stay dry. We were out here on a hunt before you were born, he said. I saw the small bitter nut then. It was already a tomahawk tree. A tomahawk tree is a sapling with that double shoot, the two leading branches that can, with help, become one. If I wasn't born yet, I said, daring, you didn't know I would be a boy. I might have been a girl, he said quietly. I knew. And I saw the bitternut hickory beside its two rocks. It was a tall tree now, twice the height of a man. The stone blade stuck out on both sides of the slender trunk, a little way below the branches. It was as deep in the wood as if it were a natural part of the tree. It had been there as long as I had been alive. There was an odd feeling in my throat as I looked at it, like pain and happiness mixed together. And I did what my father had instructed me to do. I said to the tree, Thank you, my brother. My father's hand rested on my shoulder for a moment. And then he took some tobacco from the pouch at his belt and put it on the ground as a gift to the spirit of the tree. And he too thanked the hickory and gave apologies for what we had to do. Then he took out his own axe and cut down the tree. Because it was green wood, the trunk was tough, but before long he trimmed it down to the first unfinished shape of the tomahawk that he and the tree had begun for me the day I was born. At home, by the time it was finished and perfect, winter would be here. That was when I would be taken deep into the woods, blindfolded, alone, for the three-month test of solitude that would turn me into a man. This tomahawk would be one of the very few things I could take with me to help me stay alive. We heard from Little Hawk there, but this is actually the story of two boys and how they become men set against the backdrop of the European settlement of New England. What did you first know about this story? Was it a story that was a long time brewing in your mind? It was a long time researching, that's for sure. I built a house on an island in a salt marsh in Massachusetts and looking out at the marsh you realised that for thousands of years before the Mayflower came in the 17th century, Indians were hunting across this land and I began trying to figure out what it must have been like for the Indians and for the settlers in that beginning time which became disastrous after about 60 years they were all trying to kill each other, they were killing each other. So I started reading and reading and reading, and my imagination produced two boys, this little hawk and a settler boy, son of settlers who'd come on one of the boats after the Mayflower. 
it weaves in historical fact with these fictional characters. Was that a difficult thing to do? It's terrible. I said to my editor, don't ever let me do this again. It's the third time I've done a book with a historical background and your imaginary story has to fit absolutely. Nobody can tell you what things actually happened 400 years ago. You have to rely on the written sources. You have to rely on what was written down then by Winslow and all the very first Puritans. 102 of them got off the Mayflower and several of them wrote memoirs afterwards. And there are things like collected letters... And did any of that research take your story in a different direction? Not really, because I knew the historical framework pretty well before I began. You know, a book is always a journey. You know where you're leaving from and you know where you're going. Uh, But you meet incidents and sometimes people on the way that you weren't expecting. And that, that can take you in interesting byways. What about personal research? I mean, I've lived in New England where it gets very snowy in the winter for decades. And just skiing through the woods, you learn a lot about the feel of it, the the difficulties of just of travel. Place is a very strong character in your books. Of course, you're, you're famous for the Dark is Rising sequence, which is anchored in the British landscape. What made you decide to tackle your, what's now your home, home turf? It's been creeping up on me a little bit, I think. I wrote a book called Victory, which was half about a boy in Nelson's time and half about a very homesick English girl in Connecticut. Before that, I wrote a book called King of Shadows, which was about an American boy finding himself acting at the Globe with Shakespeare. This is indeed the very first time that a place in America has grabbed me enough to say, write this book. But even so, of course, half the characters are English. (laughs) One of the reviewers of this book, in fact, our reviewer, Marcus Sedgwick, described it as a daring book? I think it's daring in that I am a white English-born person writing in the voice of a Native American, which, again, you have to do it with immense respect. Also, perhaps it's daring because it is telling the flip side of the happy Thanksgiving story that all American children learn about. When they have their first Thanksgiving dinner, the pilgrims giving thanks for their first harvest alongside the friendly Indians who have been helping them. And then within 60 years, they are killing each other in King Philip's War, uh, which is the beginning of the pattern of driving out of American Indians that you had centuries after that. But you're also writing in the voice of a boy, two boys. And you do that very well. What's the appeal of writing boys? Are they easier to write for you? Do you prefer to write them? Or is it simply that they they work better in the story. In the very beginning, I thought about having John be a girl simply for the balance. But girls led such a restricted life in those days that it would have been very dull. As for boy and girl heroes, I have to say that when I was 10 or 11, I read books and loved them, and I really didn't care whether the hero was a boy or a girl or a rabbit. It was identifying with the hero, and I think children still do that. And out of the blue question here, but I know that it's one that our young listeners will want to know the answer to. You were taught at Oxford by Tolkien. Mm-hmm. What was he like? I never met him. Tolkien and Lewis were lecturing when I was reading English at Oxford. And Tolkien would begin his series of lectures on Beowulf with a great shout of what? 
and go into the first half page of Beowulf in Anglo-Saxon, which was riveting. Thereafter, he mumbled, rather. <laughs> Lewis was terrific. He was lecturing on Renaissance literature and was mesmerising. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.